Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. One of my favorite tasks here at 1001 Classic Short Stories is to introduce authors you are probably not familiar with and to keep our selection varied. I've made no secret of my love for stories of the American West. In fact, we just finished Lonesome Dove over at 1001 Heroes. This author, Andy Adams, liked the cowboy life and wrote about it, using his real-life experiences to create his stories. And I think you'll enjoy this one very much. A little bit about Andy Adams. As a boy, he helped with cattle and horses on the family farm. During the early 1880s, he went to Texas, where he stayed for 10 years, spending much of that time driving cattle on the western trails. In 1890, he tried working as a businessman, but the venture failed, so he tried gold mining in Colorado and Nevada. In 1894, he settled in Colorado Springs, where he lived until his death. He began writing at the age of 43, publishing his most successful book, The Log of a Cowboy. He also wrote a book called Cattle Brands in 1906, from which today's story comes. The Chicago Herald once said, As a narrative of cowboy life, Andy Adams' book is clearly the real thing. It carries its own certificate of authentic, first-hand experience on every page. And now, Drifting North by Andy Adams. It was a wet, bad year on the old western trail. From Red River North and all along was herd after herd, waterbound by high water in the rivers. Our outfit lay over nearly a week on the South Canadian, but we were not alone, for there were five other herds waiting for the river to go down. This river had tumbled over her banks for several days, and the driftwood that was coming down would have made it dangerous swimming for cattle. We were expected to arrive in Dodge early in June, but when we reached the North Fork of the Canadian, we were two weeks behind time. Old George Carter, the owner of the herd, was growing very impatient about us, for he had had no word from us after we'd crossed the Red River at Doan's Crossing. Other cowmen lying around Dodge, who had herds on the trail, could hear nothing from their men, but in their experience and confidence in their outfits, guessed the cause, it was water. Our surprise when we came opposite Camp Supply to have Carter and a stranger ride out to meet us was not to be measured. They'd gotten impatient waiting, and had taken the mail buckboard to supply, making inquiries along the route for the hat herd, which had not passed up the trail, so they were assured. Carter was so impatient that he could not wait, as he had a prospective buyer on his hands, and the delay in the appearing of the herd was very annoying to him. Old George was as tickled as a little boy to meet us all. The cattle were looking as fine as silk. The layovers had rested them. The horses were in good trim, considering the amount of wet weather we had had. Here and there was a stray brand, but those saddle galls were unavoidable when using wet blankets. The cattle were twos and threes. We had left western Texas with a few over 3,200 head, and were none shy. We could have counted out more, but on some of them the hat brand had possibly faded out. We went into a cozy camp early in the evening. Everything needful was at hand, wood, water, and grass. Cowmen in those days prided themselves on their outfits, and Carter was a trifle gone on his men. With the cattle on hand, drinking was out of the question, so the only way to show us any regard was to bring us a box of cigars. He must have brought those cigars from Texas, for they were wrapped in a copy of the Fort Worth Gazette. It was a month old and full of news. Every man in the outfit read and reread it. There were several train robberies reported in it, but that was common in those days. They had nominated for governor the little cavalryman, Saul Ross, and this paper estimated that his majority would be at least 200,000. 
we were all anxious to get home in time to vote for him. Theodore Bowman was foreman of our outfit. Bow was a typical trail boss. He had learned to take things as they came, play the cards as they fell, and not fret himself about little things that could not be helped. If we'd been a month behind, he never would have thought to explain the why or wherefore to old man Carter. Several years after this, when he was accounting for the army, he rode up to a herd over in the Chisholm Trail and asked one of the tailmen, "'Son, have you seen anything of about three hundred black soldiers?' "'No,' said the cowboy. "'Well,' said Bal, "'I've lost about that many.' The night around camp, the smoke was curling upward from those cigars in clouds. When supper was over and the guards arranged for the night, storytelling was in order. This cattle buyer with us lived in Kansas City and gave us several good ones. He told us of an attempted robbery of a bank which had occurred a few days before in a western town. As a prelude to the tale, he gave us the history of the robbers. Cow Springs, Kansas, said he, earned the reputation honestly of being a herd cow town. When it became the terminus of one of the many eastern trails, it was at its worst. The death rate amongst its city marshals, always due to a six-shooter in the hands of some man who never hesitated to use it, made the office not over-desirable. The office was vacated so frequently in this manner that at last no local man could be found who would have it. Then the city fathers sent to Texas for a man who had the reputation of being a killer. He kept his record a vivid green by shooting first and asking questions afterward. Well, the first few months he filled the office of Marshall, he killed two white men and an Indian, and had the people thoroughly buffaloed. When the cattle season had ended and winter came on, the little town grew tame and listless. There was no man to dare him to shoot, and he longed for other worlds to conquer. He'd won his way into public confidence with his little gun. But this confidence reposed in him was misplaced, for he proved his own double both in morals and courage. To show you the limit of the confidence he enjoyed, the treasurer of the Cherokee Strip Cattle Association paid rent money to that tribe, at their capital, $50,000 quarterly. The capital is not located on any railroad, so the funds and currency were taken in regularly by the treasurer and turned over to the tribal authorities. This trip was always made with secrecy, and the marshal was taken along as a trusted guard. It was an extremely dangerous trip to make, as it was through a country infested with robbers and the capital at least a hundred miles from the railroad. Strange no one ever attempted to rob the stage or private conveyance, though this sum was taken in regularly for several years. The average robber was careful of his person, and could not be induced to make a target of himself for any money consideration, where there was danger of a gun in the hands of the man who would shoot rapidly and carelessly. Before the herds began to reach as far north, the marshal and his deputy gave some excuse and disappeared for a few days, which was quite common and caused no comment. One fine morning the good people of the town where the robbery was attempted were thrown into an uproar by a shooting in their bank, just at the opening hour. The robbers were none other than our trusted marshal, his deputy, and a cowpuncher who had been led into the deal. When they ordered the officials of the bank to stand in a row, with hands up, they were nonplussed at their refusal to comply. The attacked party unearthed ugly-looking guns and opened fire on the hold-ups instead. This proved bad policy, for when the smoke cleared away, the cashier, a very popular man, was found dead, while an assistant was dangerously wounded. The shooting, however, had aroused the town to the situation, and men were seen running to and fro with guns. This unexpected refusal and the consequent shooting spoiled the plans of the robbers, 
so that they abandoned the robbery and ran to their horses. After mounting, they parlayed with each other a moment and seemed bewildered as to which way they should ride, finally riding south toward what seemed a broken country. Very few minutes elapsed before every man who could find a horse was joining the posse that was forming to pursue them. Before they were even out of sight, the posse had started after them. They were well-mounted and as determined a set of men as were ever called upon to meet a similar emergency. They had the decided advantage of the robbers, as their horses were fresh, and the men knew every foot of the country. The broken country to which the hold-ups headed was a delusion as far as safety was concerned. They were never for a moment out of sight of the pursuers, and this broken country ended in a deep coulee. When the posse saw them enter this, they knew that their capture was only a matter of time. Nature seemed against the robbers, for as they entered the coulee, their horses bogged down in a springy rivulet, and they were so hard-pressed that they hastily dismounted and sought shelter in some shrubbery. The pursuing party, now swollen to quite a number, had spread out and by this time surrounded the men. They were seen to take shelter in a clump of wild plum brush, and the posse closed in on them. Seeing the numbers against them, they came out on demand and surrendered. Neither the posse nor themselves knew at this time that the shooting in the bank had killed the cashier. Less than an hour's time had elapsed between the shooting and the capture. When the posse reached town on their return, they learned of the death of the cashier, and the identity of the prisoners was soon established by citizens who knew the marshal and his deputy. The latter admitted their identity. That afternoon they were photographed, and later in the day were given a chance to write to any friends to whom they wished to say goodbye. The cowpuncher who had signed on with them was the only one who availed himself of the opportunity. He wrote to his parents. He was the only one of the trio who had the nerve to write, and seemed the only one who realized the enormity of his crime, and that he'd never see the sun of another day. As darkness settled over the town, the mob assembled. There was no demonstration. The men were taken quietly out and hanged. At the final moment, there was a remarkable variety of nerve shown. The marshal and deputy were limp, unable to stand on their feet. With piteous appeals and tears, they pleaded for mercy, something they themselves had never shown their own victims. The boy who had that day written his parents' his last letter met his fate with Indian stoicism. He cursed the crouching figures of his partners for enticing him into this crime, and begged them not to die like curs, but to meet bravely the fate which he admitted they all deserved. Several of the men in the mob came forward and shook hands with him, and with no appeal to man or his maker, he was swung into the great unknown at the end of a rope. Such nerve is seldom met in life, and those that are supposed to have it, when they come face to face with their end, are found lacking that quality. It's a common anomaly in life that the bad man with his record often shows the white feather when he meets his fate at the hands of an outraged community. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. We all took a friendly liking to the cattle buyer. He was an interesting talker. While he was a city man, he mixed with us with a certain freedom and abandon that was easy and natural. We all regretted it the next day when he and the old man left us. I've heard my father tell about those Cherokees, said Port Cole. They used to live in Georgia, those Indians. They must have been honest people, for my father told us boys at home that once in the old state while the Cherokees lived there, his father hired one of their tribe to guide him over the mountains. There was a pass through the mountains that was used and known only to these Indians. It would take six weeks to go and come, and to attend to the business in view. My father was a small boy at the time, 
and says that his father hired the guide for the entire trip for $40 in gold. One condition was that the money was to be paid in advance. The morning was set for the start, and my grandfather took my father along on the trip. Before starting from the Indian's cabin, my grandfather took out his purse and paid the Indian four $10 gold pieces. The Indian walked over to the corner of the cabin, and in the presence of other Indians laid this gold, in plain sight of all, on the end of a log that projected where they crossed outside, and got onto his horse to be gone six weeks. They made the trip on time, and my father said his first thought on their return to the Indian village was to see if the money was untouched. It was. You couldn't risk white folks that way. "'Oh, I don't know,' said one of the boys. "'Suppose you save your wages this summer "'and try it next year when we start up the trail, "'just to see how it'll work.' "'Well, if it's just the same to you,' replied Port, "'lighting a fresh cigar, "'I'll not try, for I'm well enough satisfied "'as to how it would turn out without testing it.' "'Isn't it strange,' said Batshaw, "'that if you trust a man or put confidence in him, "'he won't betray you. "'Now that marshal... One month he was guarding money at the risk of his life, and the next he was losing his life trying to rob someone. I remember a similar case down on the Rio Grande. It was during the boom in sheep a few years ago, when everyone got crazy over sheep. A couple of Americans came down on the river to buy sheep. They brought their money with them. It was before the time of any railroads. The man they deposited their money with had lived amongst these Mexicans till he'd forgotten where he did belong, though he was a Yankee. Those sheep buyers asked their banker to get them a man who spoke Spanish and knew the country as a guide. The banker sent and got a man that he could trust. He was a swarthy-looking native whose appearance would not recommend him anywhere. He was accepted, and they set out to be gone over a month. They bought a band of sheep, and it was necessary to pay for them at a point some forty miles further up the river. There had been some robbing along the river, and these men felt uneasy about carrying the money to this place to pay for the sheep. The banker came to the rescue by advising them to send money by the Mexican, who could take it through in a single night. No one would ever suspect him of ever having a dollar on his person. It looked risky, but the banker who knew the nature of the native urged it as the better way, assuring them that the Mexican was perfectly trustworthy. The peon was brought in, the situation was explained to him, and he was ordered to be in readiness at nightfall to start on his errand. He carried that money over forty miles that night, and delivered it safely in the morning to the proper parties. This act of his aroused the admiration of these sheepmen beyond a point of safety. They paid for the sheep, were gone for a few months, sold out their flocks to a good advantage, and came back to buy more. This second time they did not take the precaution to have the banker hire the man, but did so themselves, intending to deposit their money with a different house further up the river. They confided to him that they had quite a sum of money with them, and that they deposited with the same merchant to whom he had carried the money before. The first night they camped, the Mexican murdered them both, took the money, and crossed into Mexico. He hid their bodies, and it was months before they were missed, and a year before their bones were found. He had plenty of time to go to the ends of the earth before his crime would be discovered. Now that Mexican would never think of betraying the banker, his old friend and patron, his muy bueno amigo, there were obligations that he could not think of breaking with the banker. But these fool sheepmen, supposing it was simple honesty, paid the penalty of their confidence with their lives. Now when he rode over this same road alone a few months before, 
with over $5,000 in money belonging to these same men. All he would need to have done was ride across the river. When there were no obligations binding, he was willing to add murder to robbery. Some folks say that Mexicans are good people. It is the climate, possibly. They can always be depended upon to assay high in treachery. What guard are you going to put on me tonight? inquired old man Carter of Bow. This outfit, said Bow, in reply, don't allow any tenderfoot around the cattle. At night, at least. You better play your company. Somebody that's come. If you're so very anxious to do something, the cook may let you rustle wood or carry water. We'll fix you up a bed after a little and see that you get into it where you can sleep and be harmless. Colonel, added Bow, why is it that you never tell that experience you had once among the Mexicans? Well, there was nothing funny in it to me, said Carter, and they say I never tell it twice alike. Why, certainly, tell us, said the cattle buyer. I've never heard it. Don't throw off tonight. Well, there's a good many years ago, began old man George, but the incident is very clear in my mind. I was working for a month's wages then myself. We were driving cattle out of Mexico. The people I was working for contracted for a herd down in Chihuahua, about 400 miles south of El Paso. We sent in our own outfit, wagon, horses, and men, two weeks before. I was kept behind to take in the funds to pay for the cattle. The day before I started, my people drew out of the bank $28,000, mostly large bills. They wired ahead and engaged a rig to take me from the station where I left the railroad to the ranch, and if I recall right, it was something like 90 miles. I remember I bought a new moleskin suit, which was very popular about then. I had nothing but a small handbag, and it contained only a six-shooter. I bought a book to read on the train and on the road out. It was called Other People's Money. The title caught my fancy, and it was very interesting. It was written by a Frenchman, full of love and thrilling situations. I had the money belted on me securely, and started out with flying colors. The railroad runs through a dreary country, not worth a second look, so I read my new book. When I arrived at the station, I found the conveyance awaiting me. The plan was to drive halfway and stay overnight at a certain hacienda. The driver insisted on starting at once, telling me that we could reach the Hacienda Grande by 10 o'clock that night, which would be half my journey. We had a double-seated buckboard and covered the country rapidly. There were two Mexicans on the front seat, while I had the rear one all to myself. Once on the road, I interested myself in that book, Other People's Money, almost forgetful of the fact that at that very time, I had enough of other people's money on my person to set all the bandits in Mexico on my trail. There was nothing of incident that evening until an hour before sundown. We reached a small ranchito where we spent an hour changing horses, had coffee, and a rather light lunch. Before leaving, I noticed a pinto horse hitched to a tree some distance in the rear of the house. As we were expecting to buy a number of horses, I walked back and looked this one over carefully. He was very peculiarly color-marked in the mane. I inquired for his owner, but they told me he wasn't around. It was growing dusk when we started out again. The evening was warm and sultry and threatening rain. We'd been on our way about an hour when I realized we'd left the main road and were bumping along on a by-road. I asked the driver his reason for this, and he explained that it was a cut-off and that by taking it we would save three miles and half an hour's time. As a further reason, he expressed his opinion that we would have a rain that night, and he was anxious to reach the hacienda in good time. 
I encouraged them to drive faster, which he did. Within another hour I noticed we were going down a dry arroyo, with mesquite brush on both sides of the road, which was little better than a trail. My suspicions were never aroused sufficiently to open the little handbag and belt on the six-shooter. I was dreaming along when we came to a sudden stop before what seemed a deserted jackal. The Mexicans mumbled something to each other over some disappointment, when the driver said to me, Here is where we stay all night. This is the hacienda. They both got out and insisted on my getting out, but I refused to do so. I reached down and picked up my little grip and was in the act of opening it when one of them grabbed my arm and jerked me out of the seat to the ground. I realized then, for the first time, that I was in for it. I never knew before that I could put up such a fine defense, for inside a minute I had them both blinded in their own blood. I gathered up rocks and had them flying when I heard a clatter of hoofs coming down the arroyo like a squadron of cavalry. They were so close on to me that I took to the brush without hat, coat, or pistol. Men that pack a gun all their lives never have it when they need it. That was exactly my fix. Darkness was in my favor, but I had no more idea where I was or which way I was going than a baby. One thing, sure, I was trying to get away from there as fast as I could. The night was terribly dark, and about ten o'clock it began to rain a deluge. I kept going all night, but must have been circling. Towards morning I came to an arroyo which was running full of water. My idea was to get that between me and the scene of my trouble, so I took off my boots to wait it. When about one-third of the way across, I either stepped off a bluff bank or into a well, where I went under and dropped the boots. When I came to the surface, I made a few strokes swimming and landed in a clump of mesquite brush, to which I clung, got on my feet, and waded out to the opposite bank, more scared than hurt. And right there I lay until daybreak. The thing that I remember best now was the peculiar odor of the wet moleskin. If there had been a strolling artist about looking for a picture of despair, I certainly would have filled the bill. The sleeves were torn out of my shirt, and my face and arms were scratched and bleeding from the thorns of the mesquite. No one who could have seen me then would ever have dreamed that I was a walking depository of other people's money. When it got good daylight, I started out and kept the shelter of the brush to hide me. After nearly an hour's travel, we came out on a divide, and about a mile off I saw what looked like a jackal. Directly I noticed a smoke arise, and I knew then it was a habitation. My appearance was not what I desired, but I approached it. In answer to my knock at the door, a woman opened it about two inches and seemed to be more interested in examination of my anatomy than in listening to my troubles. After I had made an earnest, sincere talk, she asked me, No esté loco tú? I assured her that I was perfectly No está no este loco tú? I assured her that I was perfectly sane and that all I needed was food and clothing for which I'd pay her well. It must have been my appearance that aroused her sympathy, for she admitted me and fed me. The woman had a little girl of probably ten years of age. This little girl brought me water to wash myself while the mother prepared me something to eat. I was so anxious to pay these people that I found a five-dollar gold piece in one of my pockets and gave it to the little girl, who in turn gave it to her mother. While I was drinking the coffee and eating my breakfast, the woman saw me looking at a picture of the Virgin Mary which was hanging on the adobe wall opposite me. She asked me if I was a Catholic, which I admitted. Then she brought out a shirt and offered it to me. Suddenly the barking of a dog attracted her to the door. She returned breathless 
and said in good Spanish, For God's sake, run, fly. Don't let my husband and brother catch you here, for they're coming home. She thrust the, th she thrust, she thrust the shirt into my hand and pointed out the direction in which I should go. From a concealed point of the brush I saw two men ride up to the jackal and dismount, and dismount. One of them was riding the pinto horse I had seen the day before. I kept, the brush for an, I kept to the brush for an hour or so and finally came out on the mesa. Here I found a flock of sheep and a pastor. And a pasture. From this shepherd I learned that... A flock of sheep and a shepherd. From him I learned that I was about ten miles from the main road. He took the sandals from his own feet and fastened them on mine, gave me directions, and, and by night I reached the hacienda where I was kindly received and cared for. This ranchero sent after officers, and I had the country scoured for the robbers. I was detained nearly a week to see if I could identify my drivers. Without result. They even brought in the owner of the pinto horse, and no doubt husband of the woman who had saved my life. After a week's time I joined our own outfit, and never heard a language that sounded so sweet as the English of my own tongue. I would have gone back and testified against the owner of the spotted horse, if it hadn't been for the woman and the little girl who depended on him, robber that he was. "'Now, girls,' said Bow, addressing Carter and the stranger, "'I've made you a bed out of the wagon sheet and rustled a few blankets from the boys. You'll find the bed under the wagon tongue, and we've stretched a fly over it to keep the dew off you, besides adding privacy to your apartments. So you can turn in when you run out of stories or get sleepy.' "'Haven't you got one for us?' inquired the cattle buyer of Bow. This is no time to throw off or refuse to be sociable. Well, now, that bank robbery you were telling the boys about, said Bow, as he bit the tip from a fresh cigar, reminds me of a hold-up that I was in up in the San Juan mining country in Colorado. We had driven into that mining camp a small bunch of beef and had sold them to fine advantage. The outfit had gone back, and I remained behind to collect for the cattle, expecting to take the stage and overtake the outfit down on the river. I had neglected to book my passage in advance, so when the stage was ready to start, I had to content myself with a seat on top. I don't remember the amount of money I had. It was the proceeds of something like 150 beeves in a small bag along with some old clothes. There wasn't a cent of it mine. Still, I was supposed to look after it. The driver answered to the name of Southpaw, drove six horses, and we had a jolly crowd on top. Near midnight we were swinging along, and as we rounded a turn in the road, we noticed a flickering light ahead some distance which looked like the embers of a campfire. As we came nearly opposite that light, the lead horses shied at some object in the road in front of them. Southpaw uncurled his whip and was in the act of pouring the leather into them when that light was uncovered as big as the headlight of an engine. An empty five-gallon oil can had been cut in half and used as a reflector, throwing full light into the road sufficient to cover the entire coach. Then came a round of orders which meant business. Shoot them leaders if they cross that obstruction. Kill anyone who gets off on the opposite side. Driver, move up a few feet further. A few feet further. That'll do. Now every son of a horse thief, get out on this side of the coach and be quick about it. The man giving these orders stood a few feet behind the lamp and out of sight but the muzzle of a Winchester was plainly visible and seemed to cover every man on the stage. It's needless to say, we obeyed, got down in the full glare of the light, 
and lined up with our backs to the robber, hands in the air. There was a heavily veiled woman on the stage, whom he begged to hold the light for him, assuring her that he'd never robbed a woman. When the light was held for him, he drew a black cap over each one of us, searching everybody for weapons. Then he proceeded to rob us, and at last went through the mail. It took him over an hour to do the job, and he seemed in no hurry. It was not known what he got out of the mail, but the passengers yielded about 900 in revenue to him, while there was three times the amount on top of the coach in my grip, wrapped in a dirty flannel shirt. When he disappeared, we were the cheapest lot of men imaginable. It was amusing to hear the excuses, threats, and the like, but the fact remained the same that a dozen of us had been robbed by a lone highwayman. I felt good over it as the money in the grip had been overlooked. Well, we cleared out the obstruction in the road and got aboard the coach once more. About four o'clock in the morning we arrived at our destination, only two hours late. In the hotel office where the stage stopped was the very man who had robbed us. He had got in an hour ahead of us and was a very much interested listener to the incident as retold. There was an early train out of town that morning, and at a place where they stopped for breakfast, she sat at the table with several drummers, traveling salesmen, who were in the hold-up. A most attentive listener. He was captured the same day. He had hired a horse out of a livery stable the day before to ride out to look at a ranch he thought of buying. The livery man noticed that he limped slightly. He had collided with lead in Texas, as we learned afterward. The horse which had been hired to the ranch buyer of the day before was returned to the corral of the livery barn at an unknown hour during the night, and suspicion settled in on the lame man. When he got off the train at Pueblo, he walked into the arms of officers. The limp had marked him clearly. In a grip which he carried were a number of sacks, which he supposed contained gold dust, but held only talk on its way to assayers in Denver. These he'd gotten out of the express the night before, supposing they were valuable. We were all detained as witnesses. He was tried for robbing the mail and was the coolest man in the courtroom. He was a tall, awkward-looking fellow, light complexion with a mild blue eye. His voice, when not disguised, would mark him amongst a thousand men. It was peculiarly mild and soft and would lure a babe from its mother's arms. At the trial he never tried to hide his past, and you couldn't help liking the fellow for his frank answers. Were you ever charged with any crime before? asked the prosecution. If so, when and where? Yes, said the prisoner, in Texas, for robbing the mails, in 77. What was the result? continued the prosecution. They sent me over the road for 99 years. Then how does it come that you're at liberty? quizzed the attorney. Well, you see, the President of the United States at that time was a warm personal friend of mine, though we had drifted apart somewhat. When he learned that the federal authorities had interfered with my liberties, he pardoned me out instantly. What did you do then? asked the attorney. Well, I went back to Texas and was attending to my own business when I got into a little trouble and had to kill a man. Lawyers down there won't do anything for you without you have money, and as I didn't have any for them, I came up to this country to try and make an honest dollar. He went over the road a second time and wasn't in the federal prison a year before he was released through influence. Prison walls were never made to hold as cool a rascal as he was. By the way, any of you have a match? It was an ideal night. Millions of stars flecked the sky overhead. No one seemed willing to sleep. We had heard the evening sun and the trumpets sounding tattoo over at the fort, but their warnings of the closing day were not for us. 
"'The guards changed, "'the cattle sleeping like babes in a trundle bed. "'Finally, one by one, "'the boys sought their blankets, "'while sleep and night wrapped these children of the plains in her arms.'" Thanks for joining us for this story, Drifting North, by Andy Adams. It's a Western story, which we don't do often at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, but I hope you enjoyed it. We try to do a wide variety, and this is definitely one of them. I wanted to thank you for some recent reviews. The first one is Five Stars, Thankful. Wow, completely happy upon finding this gem. Started with Florence Nightingale, and although a short episode, it packed quite a punch. Well done. Down from Mildred's Marie Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, most enjoyable. Thanks for making available these classic quality stories in an enjoyable and engaging way to help pass the time of my workouts. Down from Cargo 1414, Apple Podcast, U.S. And deepest thanks, five stars. John Hagedorn is prolific and passionate. I've been eating these stories up like grapes. Thank you so much for these stories. They are a glimmer in a time so dark. Down from Rocky Pup 33, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, respect. Thanks from Iraq for this great show. Down from Ahmed Basim, Apple Podcast, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, perfect companion for long walks, five stars. For 11 weeks of social distancing, these stories have been perfect companion for my long hikes. Thank you. Down from Love to Hike, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Lockdown London. Here in London, UK, where we've been in coronavirus lockdown for many weeks, your podcasts have been a wonderful discovery and really lightened my day. I'd love to become a patron, but bank charges make small dollar payments impractical from my sterling account. If you created an annual payment option, I'd love to contribute to your excellent work. Down from North London Fan, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And and at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network, you do have the option to do a one-time to do one-time gift. And we'd love one. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. If you enjoy these short stories, take a moment to visit us at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. We do a lot of stories there by female authors, and we have some fantastic stories over there. So give it a try, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon.